Episode 78 ISRO's Early Earth Observation Cameras with former chairman Dr. Kiran Kumar. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not for profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. Dr. Kiran Kumar, you're a physicist, scientist, engineer who's worked on imaging systems for India's earliest remote sensing satellites like Bhaskara, IRS, Cartosat, and the cameras used on the Chandrayaan-1 and Mars Orbiter missions. And then you went on to serve as a chairman for the Indian Space Research Organization from January 2015 to January this year. And you're a recipient of many awards, too many to mention in this short recording, <laughs> uh, but there's many things I would like to talk to you about. But I'm going to try to discipline myself and restrict our conversation at this time to your earlier career with Israel in the 1970s, if I may. So, if I I may ask you, you you graduated in physics in 1971. Was science always on the cards for you, or did you consider other subject areas as well? No, in terms of science, it was always science on my agenda, Uh uh, because right from my school days, I was quite keen on uh, Science. Of course, uh, there was a small twist. Initially, I was actually planning to get into medicine ah. as uh, I had taken in the pre-university, that is after our 10th, uh-huh. a course called Physics, Chemistry and Biology, which was uh, actually a requirement for getting into medicine at that time. Uh-huh. And after I completed my pre-university with a distinction in Physics, Chemistry, Biology, I found out that I was running short of 16 years completion, which was a prerequisite for entering the course of medicine at that time Uh by 22 days. (laughs) On the 1st of October, I should have completed 16 years for getting entry, Uh but my date of birth was 22nd October, so I was falling short by about three weeks there. So as a result, in that year, I was not going to get the admission for medicine. So what happened is I joined uh, for uh, the BSc, Bachelor in Science, to start with. And it also so happened that in I was in Hassan, a place um, about um, midway between Bangalore and Mangalore. That's where I was born and uh, living. But I was very keen on studying in an institution called National College in Bangalore. Uh-huh. And it so happened that they started a new course after a long gap of physics honors in Bangalore on that year. Uh-huh. So I joined there in uh, 1968 in Bangalore for physics honors. And of course, from then on, the whole thing changed because I came in contact with uh, a professor in physics at that time, Dr. H. Narsimaya, who later on became the vice chancellor of Bangalore University. And he was a great um, individual, very simple, and then very concerned about um, society and the contribution of education to educated people to society. So then the whole course of my thinking changed. And also in 1969, we had this uh, landing on the moon. And we heard all that in the our hostel room on the radio. So then, of course, space was always a... a thing which was attracting attention. But the physics honors was what I did in between 68 to 71. And science definitely was always on the agenda for me. Oh, that's really quite interesting. So it's a combination of timing, uh, what courses are available. And uh, perhaps, um, would, it, would, you, would it be fair to refer to this professor at the National College as quite influential in your career? Yeah, actually, National College during those periods, 
was one of the very leading institutions in Karnataka and it was well known because it always used to produce uh, top ranking students in the various um, uh-huh. courses that it was offering and uh, it was very well known uh, during that period and though i was in uh, almost 200 kilometers from this place bangalore we were uh, i was keen that i should be studying there some course that was the kind of thinking that was there <laughs> and you mentioned hassan isro has the master control facility there did that uh, have any yeah that's correct. of course at that time it was not there mm-hmm. because uh, it's talking about 60s yeah. 68 is when i left the hassan ah, and of course central facility activity started in the later half of 70s Right, I thought it was even later because <clears throat> it came along with the Insat series. One, for example, we had the first uh, Insat going up now, eighty-one, eighty-two time frame. Oh, so see. by that time, the facility had been established. And I, it's quite interesting, you know. Um, there's many people who were involved in the early days of Israel um, who got their training uh, outside India. Uh, I'm thinking of people like Vikram Sarabhai and Satish Dhawan and Gaurikar and Bam- Professor Bhavsa. But your training is all entirely in India. Yeah, my entire uh, life is in India only, yeah. except for the time when we used to visit for some meetings or some kind of a evaluation testing period. Otherwise, uh, I've been... actually living in india all the time <laughs> and and you know that's uh, not unusual there are many i suppose most of the people involved in the early days of israel um yeah. are work or had primarily indian education um that's right and uh, professor raman the, the only nobel prize winner for physics in india in the 1930s uh, he was entirely right. educated in india right. that's correct <laughs> Um you also mentioned the late 60s was a very interesting time for the space race. Um so what what do you remember of um, well first of all with with Gagarin Yuri Gagarin in 1961 in April he did his space flight and then before the year was out he visited many places including India. Were you aware of his visit at that time? You must have been very young. No, actually the Yuri Gagarin getting into the space itself was a huge event of course we all remember during our school days reading about it in the papers and all that of mm-hmm. course his visit to india itself i was aware of through the papers but mm-hmm. other than that you know, there was no other right. uh, or any of the thing but um, the event itself was of course a hugely important event because man going into space is a great uh, happening so we were all very much uh, excited during our school days on that and, and did that influence you in, in an interest in space did you have a telescope did you go out stargazing at that time no even otherwise one of the things that in hassan we had a beautiful uh, night sky visibility so uh-huh. we were keen on looking at constellations and trying to understand the various uh, star formations and these kinds of things as a general curiosity in science we were interested in uh, you looking at uh, sky but apart from that of course no nothing beyond that because during those days uh, we during school days the primary interest is all on uh, getting to school immediately after that getting into sports activities you mentioned the moon landing in july 1969 and of course um the three apollo 11 astronauts aldrin armstrong and collins came to india as well so what are your recollections of the actual landing itself and and during their visit were you there we were listening to the radio telecast radio tele program from our hostel room in national college uh-huh. so that i distinctly remember and uh, this particular event listening to the radio at that point of time uh-huh. and uh, naturally gives you kind of uh, a great feeling that a human being is able to reach a place like moon and then step down there so mm-hmm. it was a really an exciting event i can say <laughs> now i i'm really always interested in the histor- history uh, of the early days and the two key players right. 
were Satish Dhawan and, and Vikram Sarabhai. So Vikram Sarabhai first, now he died uh, tragically very uh, young in 1971, the same year that you graduated. D- d- what's your recollections of him? Did you ever meet him? No, actually, I never met him. But uh, even during the initial days of uh, my joining the Space Application Center, of course, we were listening to our um, directors and senior people talking about him. And my own uh, knowledge about him at that point of time was only through what we had read in the papers or the news items. And otherwise, I had no opportunity to either meet him or even see him uh-huh. uh, during his uh, life. Uh, and what about Satish Dhawan? Now, he was in place uh, by the time you arrived at Israel, so you must have had a lot of interactions yeah. with him. Dhawan, of course, uh, I had. he was also the director of uh, Indian Institute of Science, where I did my post-graduation mm. uh, between 73 and 75. So during that time, he was also the director of Indian Institute of Science in addition to being the chairman of ISRO. So I had occasion to see him uh, deliver some talks in Institute and also later when he was in the, when he had visited the Space Application Center, talked means uh, listened to his lectures. Uh But in terms of physical interaction, one-to-one interaction, probably it happened much later after he retired, uh-huh. but uh, during the course of uh, my own working period in uh, Space Application Center, uh, physical one-to-one contact was very limited. Right. And he was, from all accounts, a very charismatic figure. He insisted on uh, continuing his teaching role at the IISC uh, when he took on the role as uh, chairman at uh, Israel. So... Uh, to what extent was he personally a bridge, do you think, for your journey from a student at the IISC across to working for Israel itself? Uh, no, see, actually, in terms of um, Satish Dhawan's influence on me, or either in the Institute or in the uh, ISRO itself during the initial period, uh-huh. um, there was not much of a uh, influence. But actually, where later, as I grew up in ISRO, I realized uh, the kind of influence he has had on ISRO in general, uh-huh. and me at much later in terms of how things happened and how things were done. But during my college days or in the institute days. It was very, you can say, limited. <laughs> now, if I move on to your work within Israel, um, I understand you're the first, um, you specialized in imaging sensors and payloads on uh, Earth remote sensing satellites. The did you work on Aryabhata as well, or was uh, Bhaskara the first one that you worked on? Yeah. Actually, in 1975, April, Aryabhata was launched. So I was still in the Indian Institute of Science doing my MTech uh-huh. and physical engineer at that point. Right. So during the... I was actually doing my project work. My project work was a very interesting one, uh-huh. where one of the discarded lathes had been converted into a drum scanner for converting films, scanning films into electrical domain, doing processing in electrical domain, writing back onto another film. A unique uh, drum scanner had been devised at Indian Institute of Science Laboratory. Uh-huh. Professor B.L. Dikshitlu, who was the uh, one of the professors at the School of Automation. Uh-huh. So under him, I was doing my project work. So Aryabhata was already launched by the time I joined ISRO. And... Actually, during the course of my project work, this particular advertisement for an opportunity to work on a program called Satellite for Earth Observation. It was called SEO, uh-huh. Satellite for Earth Observation. So I was recruited for a research associate position in Ahmedabad, where later this program became known as Bhaskara. Uh-huh. Otherwise, initially it started as a satellite for Earth observation, where two satellites were going to be launched by Russians. And uh, this was the 
starting of the remote sensing activities in from space for india so i was recruited as a research associate in space application center for working on this particular program so that's right at the beginning you 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 started there with this uh, project in fact uh, other things that happened is my own exposure in the institute the course itself was very unique uh, you can say it was called as uh, mtech master of technology in physical engineering uh-huh. because those days physical engineering probably very few people would have heard while chemical engineering existed physical engineering was not common it was actually introduced as a course for br- bridging the gap between scientists and engineers in a way ah. you could enter either from the science stream or the engineering stream and there was appropriate uh, core courses to be done and so i joined this uh, physical engineering course in a significant way it had influence during my entire career because it gave me the perspective of coming from science background into engineering and then how to deal with many of the activities and it was quite a unique program that way <laughs> and if i take you back you mentioned um, that you adapted a lathe as part of your project yeah. so Yeah. is that um, in a way simulating what a, a satellite imaging sen- sen- sensor would do when it's in earth orbit and rotating no, not in that sense it, this particular thing is if you say in the 70s uh-huh. the actually unlike today the scanners and all these converting any of the paper printed or uh, film material into electrical domain is very easy now uh-huh. but those days it was not easy so what was being done is a film actually you send a light signal through the film uh-huh. and through a detection you pick up and by change, looking at the density variation from the transmitted signal uh-huh. you actually capture the image and then you see we were working on actually medical x-ray films so whatever x-ray films have been exposed to convert produce enhanced and then processed uh, data so that doctors can see the content of the x-ray film without having to redo the exposure of the patient because in case some poor quality of film has come uh-huh. you have to expose the patient again to one more dosage to avoid that what was being looked at is can we do some picture processing activities to en- enable doctors to look at the, the contents and then contrast and then some features can be picked up so that was the basic objective so we were trying to translate from the film domain to electrical domain and as you are aware that in electrical domain you can easily do all the processing and then uh, extract information and then write it back onto the film that was the objective of that particular uh, equipment it was a very unique uh, equipment which had been designed at institute at that point of time that sounds very pioneering so what was the electro yeah, pioneering <laughs> what was the electronic uh, sensor you were using to detect the light as it went uh, through the you can say the source itself was what is called as a glow modulator initially uh-huh. later it became a glow modulator that means the light intensity is being varied detector of course is a simple photodiode detector uh, which can uh-huh. uh, pick up the signal and uh, we were also using fibers for focusing and because we were looking at spot sizes of a uh, few tens of micron for scanning the film so that's how it was done in the analog days and today's of course it's all microprocessor based yeah, yeah. digital signal processing uh, initially a- of course we used to all the a to d converters converting from analog to digital and then in the digital domain do some filtering write it back onto analog all that kind of thing that's the my first exposure to actually image and image processing <laughs> and then of you course, in terms of the images itself we had some very interesting experience during our school days uh-huh. in our house itself, for example one of the thing is we were having a, you can probably you are familiar with tiled houses tiles on top of the roof and then uh, these uh, tiles uh-huh. some places you will have a hole in the tile so you will have a sun shaft sunlight shaft entering into the house uh-huh. you darken the entire room right. and reflect the sun shaft into a wall right. and in the path 
you write on a transparent material whatever you write you can project onto the wall so we were doing such things and even equivalent of overhead projectors probably you can say we had created at home <laughs> so it's just like the very early days of pinhole cameras and maybe even right, that like the um, right. experiment that uh, Isaac Newton is uh, famous for right. putting a prism in the way right. and getting a, a spectrum right. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And just like the lathe, and um, indeed many of the uh, processes and mechanisms and technology used by the scientists and engineers in the early days, you had to make do with whatever was available. No, that's precisely the point. Yeah. You need to work with what you have access to and then achieve what you want to. <laughs> One of your... Um, um, colleagues, I'm sure you know him very well, uh, Dr. Uh, George Joseph, he talks about in his book about uh, the problems you had with one of the two cameras on board the Bascara 1 satellite, and it didn't initially work. How did you resolve that? Actually, Dr. George Joseph was the person with whom I started my career. He was my boss right from the beginning. Ah, I see. And... Uh, Okay. So the problem in the first uh, imaging instrument what we had built, of course, that is the one which had the Super Vidicon image intensifier coupled to it so that we can extend the wavelength region of observation to near infrared. And this had a high voltage system up to 14 kilovolts requirement for operating the image intensifier. Mm -hmm. And when we first switched on the camera, what happened is there was our corona taking place in the payload. So as a result of that, there was a large-scale disturbance on the EMI, the electromagnetic interference, uh -huh. switching off many of the systems. So uh -huh. we entered in. So the first uh, switch-on trial was unsuccessful in Bhaskara. But that is what really gave us the insight into the entire thing. So we spent almost, you can say, about... Uh, six months going through a detailed simulation on ground, including putting our payload inside a vacuum chamber uh -huh. and then running it for almost three weeks and then getting to know where exactly this arcing was taking place and then how this arcing actually, corona arcing, and how it would produce disturbance on to the various systems on the satellite. We carried out all those simulations and then we established that it would be possible for us to switch on the camera after about a year's time. And then uh, in the following year, we went back and then uh, switched on the camera and it started functioning. And it went on. We got uh, almost three to four years of uh, successful data collection using the Bhaskara 1. So this arcing, this corona arcing, is like sparks jumping across yeah, a right. gap. And that generally triggers a lot of electronic uh, emissions, which then interfere with some of the subsystems which were stopping it. So That's correct. why did the arcing stop after a year? What was it? Some sort of... Um, uh, Actually, you see, the problem is this was inside a potted assembly uh -huh. where you are doing the silicon material. It is the we have, for example, you have a source which is producing 14 kilovolts, uh -huh. and that has to be connected to a image intensifier segment through a cable, the high voltage cable. Uh -huh. Now, the place where you actually connect the cable to uh -huh. the high voltage source, we had put a, what is called a Teflon material as a standoff uh -huh. to support the action, uh -huh. and this was inside a potted assembly, right. and the interface between the Teflon and the potting, there was a cavity formation, and in that cavity, there was a trapped gas. Ah, and see. that was the one which was producing the arcing. Right. As you can imagine, full vacuum, there is no arcing takes place. Mm -hmm. Only at, um, as per the passion curve, at certain pressure levels only it happens. Uh -huh. So we realized the whole mechanism was such that if you allow sufficient time, all the trapped gas in that would escape and you will not have arcing. So after a period, the cavity itself, the contents just dissipated. It evacuated. Yeah. And that's what we had demonstrated on ground also by the simulation. Yeah. 
we got into this problem and then after some more period of time it stopped arcing so we were able to actually simulate that particular thing on ground and in fact that was one of the things which resulted in our systems for setting up long duration thermal vacuum tests for many of the payloads and spacecraft subsystem all of our test plans got formulated with that experience sounds as if it was intellectually very satisfying activity no it was because the in fact you can say that was the that problem is the one which gave us a thorough understanding of uh, the interfaces between the payload and satellite system and as far as i am concerned it was the one which gave me the real exposure to the entire spacecraft systems because i was the one who was going to do all the interfacing and then demonstrating that if corona happens how exactly it affects a cmos circuit getting latched and then it until you put off that again and put on the latching the latching current flow stops so like that it was a host of thing we understood because as you can visualize a very first attempt successful thing compared to a successful thing unsuccessful thing gives you much more insight into the whole thing hmm. and we learnt a lot more with respect to the spacecraft spacecraft systems and payloads during that particular period and your former boss uh, when he published his book a couple of years ago <clears throat> it was entitled the india's journey towards excellence in building earth observation cameras he recounts a very interesting story um when you after your, your tests in the vacuum chamber chamber and you went back uh, after about 9 months or so you were fairly convinced that uh, the camera when you switch it on again will work and uh, he recounts a conversation in the book between professor dawn and uh, mr go who is the head of <laughs> control <laughs> division uh, we we are present there that so I'll, I'll just re- for people who've not read the book the story goes that um, uh, Professor Down said um, let's have a bet to see if it works this time or not and Mr Gold said yes we will and he said how much and Professor Down said okay I'll give you half of my salary one year salary that I get from the department of space um is, were you present at that time yeah actually see one of the thing is professor dawan what he had also done is he was taking the actual salary from ISC mm. and in isro he had only notional salary he was taking <laughs> of 1 rupee yes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i don't know if mr gold knew that but that was the the key point about the story yes <laughs> that's right uh, were you present at that conversation no, no i was not present at that conversation <laughs> we heard of it of course somebody else who's a very large figure in the early developments of uh, of Isro professor Yash Pal uh, understand yeah. he recruited you into Isro in 1974 that's right for the chairman of the committee which interviewed me hmm. now he, he Yash Pal amongst many things he did he was heading the site program to right. learn uh, or to use um satellites for educational purposes here on earth the site program is that something that you were involved as well Uh, no actually when i joined in 75 august the program of site had already become had started mm-hmm. because it was between 75 middle and 76 middle for one year where that program went on and the satellite had already been moved over india and it was the year and in about um, these uh, 2400 villages the equipment had been actually put so during that period there was a lot of excitement in the center because we had people who were producing programs for being transmitted on that so we have a developmental and educational communication unit creating uh, television programs both cultural and uh, so many things and so the lot of excitement of uh, people who are going to these villages establishing making sure that the systems run because the front end hardware was developed in amdavad space application center amdavad and the entire program was conceived in amdavad so the entire activity of um, the artist film means uh, television artists and then evaluation social scientists ev- assessing the program 
So all these kinds of things were going on during that period when I joined. And, and you know, it's it's really interesting um, that the some of the peop- earliest people to benefit from satellite uh, communication were also some of the uh, poorest. And although it was uh, an American satellite, all the site program. Uh, development work was taking place, as you say, in Ahmedabad, and it really showed the power of uh, space-based assets. Um, To what extent do you think that site program motivated the politicians uh, in India to say, yes, this space program is something from which India can benefit? No, no, I think uh, it was one of the very key things because even, for example, this is what Vikram Sarabha had ensured that he had done all the spade work where he had convinced even the American system that we should be getting this particular satellite for a certain period so that the activity can be done. And demonstrating, in fact, at that time, this was the largest socio-technological experiment conducted on broadcasting. And probably you will also recall that Professor Eshpal was given the Marconi Award for this particular activity because this is what really demonstrated that broadcasting from the satellite can reach to a very large set of people, diverse and then distributed. And as far as India itself is concerned, you can easily imagine that in the 70s, in 75, for example, only the four metros had the broadcast receiving capability oh, wow. and the entire country had no connectivity. And if we were to go by this technology otherwise available at that time with microwave towers linking every kilometer type of thing, it would have taken huge amount of time, money and effort for realizing. And this experiment of 2,400 villages across the country clearly demonstrated to the government that this is a quick and... Uh, better way of approaching the problem. And also, you can also visualize that if uh, a politician becomes aware that what he is saying can be actually reaching the entire uh, country almost instantaneously, it's a good way of uh, establishing communication for various activities. So this was what really demonstrated to the government and probably the government got really convinced that uh, this is the way to go. Uh, that's quite interesting. I, I'm sure you didn't mean it in that cynical way, but generally speaking, if politicians will benefit, no, no, it, they, they will. No, it's, yeah. he, he, all said and done, yeah. so it is basically the need for reaching out to the entire uh, countrymen, disseminating mm-hmm. information. And then, for example, in this, we remember, we, of course, in the later uh, evaluation times, uh-huh. how, for example, the children of these villages. Uh-huh. They were demanding their parents that they should have a place for uh, cleaning their hands and before taking food, they should go and do this, that kind of uh, mm-hmm. health and this thing. They started demanding. So many of these things clearly shows the power of uh, visuals and then making it known. Yes, uh, quite right. Uh, in addition to uh, the novelty of the um, educational process, the mode of uh, teaching. In the India being so huge, such a large uh, country with a very uh, diverse type of uh, to- geography as well, really space-based asset was the only practical way, really. That's correct. If I may go back a- to your work as um, the focus on a census used on satellites, one of the uh, sensors that, um, for, for a camera, for an optical camera from space, you, sure, you can see um, the oceans, land, and when it's not cloudy, and indeed the clouds when it is, uh, perhaps not too much at night time. Um, but really, in order to get the benefits of seeing something from space, you need to have something other than just optical wavelengths. So you worked on the very high-resolution radiometer, what does a very high-resolution radiometer uh, offer you that an ordinary camera doesn't? See, these are all on the geostationary platform. Uh-huh. So basically, because of the distance, 36,000 kilometers, uh-huh. we are, uh, you, there's a very high-resolution radiometer. 
because the angular resolution is high but because of the distance still the footprint on ground becomes uh, 1 km to 2 km footprint uh-huh. so basically very high resolution radiometer was working in optical and infrared wavelength mm-hmm. and uh, today we have a capability of so you can say looking at india and surroundings every 15 minutes using these uh, instruments mm-hmm. operating in six different wavelengths for imaging and in 19 channels for generating vertical temperature and humidity profiles for sound using sounders so ah. these are all still in the optical and infrared domain right and they operate on the geostationary platform so it's not you don't normally use um, very high resolution radiometers in um, equatorial or uh, low earth orbit Uh, now, lower orbit, the same instrument can give you much better resolution, mm-hmm. but still, the the first radiometer, actually, which was carried on the U.S. Uh, meteorological satellite, was called as the VHRR, very high resolution radiometer. Uh-huh. So that's how that name got stuck, and that is being used everywhere. <laughs> but basically, today the angular resolutions are much. finer angular resolutions are there even on the lower earth orbit satellite because you can see submeter resolution imaging so which produces uh, if for example if you take a lower earth orbit which is around 600 km and if you have a 1 meter resolution huh. then when you go to 60000 36000 km it's almost 60 times coarser uh-huh. it becomes i see so 1 meter by 60 meter so we are now going to have very soon a geostationary platform imaging systems which will produce uh, images at that resolution so what kind of sensors are used um, this is still infrared and and optical so it's very short wavelengths what yeah, the... the things which we uh, during the initial days is unlike uh, for example at that time what was quite popular was uh, electromechanical scanners mm-hmm. and the charge coupled devices had just come into its own during that period That's and CCDs. we were among the earliest of this technology ah. and then we start building all our imaging instruments based on this ccd and that how we were able to actually take some step ahead of others for example in our ocean color instrument mm-hmm. we were able to generate 360 meter resolution compared to 1 km which rest of the world was doing and similarly from a geostationary platform we were able to achieve 1 km angular resolution 1 km resolution from geostationary platform so we made use of uh, charge coupled devices which is a solid state device so it has less of uh, moving parts and uh, as a concept it gives you better reliability in the system so we started adopting that in our early IRS Indian remote sensing satellite program and that's very early on in uh, after CCDs really became available so again it's another right. one of these uh, pioneering moments that's correct in fact at that time only the japanese had uh, something using the CCDs and uh, we were the other country hmm. and then that's a, a big step from you mentioned earlier vidicon tubes yes, and right. image intensifiers stuff that was going on because in space as you can imagine heritage has a big uh, role so something which is already done always gets a preference but then <laughs> like one of the things what we realized is you need to make the best use of what is accessible to you and you need to move ahead because we are always uh, behind the rest of the world so we needed to adopt something novel always and then take some steps so that we can provide to the country capability which is commensurate with the contemporary system in fact that is how we were also able to put by in the, for example when we did our uh, IRS 1C system we had adopted a technology of uh, optical system though which was known in literature it had not been put into practice because certain enabling technologies were not available at that time uh-huh. so we adopted that and then we were able to bring in in our own satellite mission which was much smaller in weight and volume 5.8 meter resolution imaging system 
So between 95 and 99, you can say we had the highest spatial resolution imaging system in the civilian domain. Not many people are aware of that, really. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Um, about 10 years ago, well, in fact, 10 years ago, uh, India launched its first spacecraft to the moon, Chandrayaan-1. What was your role? I, I take it it's development of the um, camera on board Chandrayaan-1. Yeah, that is one. But apart from that, as a, because of my familiarity with the systems at the spacecraft level and other, uh-huh. I was also involved in the team which formulated the whole program. I was one of the members of the team. Uh-huh. And then, apart from the realization of the two main instruments which went in that the what we call as the the TMC and the hyperspectral imaging uh-huh. terrain mapping camera and hyperspectral imager, uh-huh. those are the two specific payloads which we developed for that. In TMC terrain mapping camera, also was a very innovative concept of using single refractive optics and with a set of mirrors converting it into three views. Uh-huh. So it was a, a novel, uh, compact uh, design that was achieved in that. And hyperspectral imaging, again, was the uh, adoption of uh, what is called a wedge filter assembly for, along with a refractive optic. So we realized that as part of the Chandrayaan uh, uh, A few of the uh, mission objectives of Chandrayaan-1 were to provide 3D imaging of the entire surface of the moon at That's high right. resolution and That's as well correct. as identifying different types of uh, elements and their distribution. Um, it was right. an incredibly successful mission, even though it did uh, end a uh, little earlier than planned. Yeah, correct. It was an extremely gratifying thing to see that see, it gave us an experience where a building a system, launching, operating, and actually involving a large number of international collaborative agencies working with them, and then the real credit for uh, discovery of um, water molecules and OH molecules and presence of uh, these on the surface of moon and the processor responsible for formation all got uh, revealed through the instrument that was carried by this particular satellite. So it's a very successful program. Yeah, and, you know, the more I read about it, um, the Mars mission, and I'll talk about that in a moment, uh, has been capturing a lot of the headlines because it's also been highly successful and it's still operating right now. But I think the Chandrayaan-1 mission, given the large-scale international collaboration element, the fact it was the first mission away from Earth orbit for Israel. It was uh, developed in a very short time scale, and it had set itself <laughs> very challenging goals. And indeed, PSLV XL, the um, more, most powerful version of PSLV, was used for the first time. So there's a lot of eggs in one basket. It must have been quite a nervous time when it was, when it was launched. Yeah, in fact, it was. You can say <laughs> the. In fact, on the day it was launched, getting launched, there were very heavy rains also. <laughs> anyway, apart and actually, PSLV is again a very unique thing because we also made use of PSLV, for example, for launching a geostationary transfer orbit. Um, launch, that means our Kalpana was launched using PSLV. Mm-hmm. Probably we are among the first to use a non-cryogenic engine-based launcher for putting a satellite into the GTO type of thing. And mm-hmm. this particular mission, again, for the Chandrayaan using PSLV, mm-hmm. is again an example of, uh, you can say, how you can work within the constraints of what you have and uh, push the limits of their capability to achieve bigger and bigger objectives. Yeah, I, I just think the Chandrayaan uh, 1 mission, um, people don't appreciate how success, how, cha- how much of a challenge it was and the ultimate success. And of course, it did win some awards as well. Yeah, that's correct. Mm. On the Mars Orbiter mission, uh, what was your contribution there? Uh, again, see, uh, very similar in terms of... Uh, formulation of the 
mission and contributing to the kind of instrument that should go on that and then actually realization of the payloads itself was I, by that time of course i had uh, taken up higher positions but the concepts whatever were there for the methane sensor and the others the cameras that were designed mm-hmm. that apart we actually made use of very innovative uh, approach for the methane sensor itself uh-huh. and some of the developments that we had done earlier we are incorporated but in the mars mission overall if you are looking at my contribution it is at the system engineering level right from the mission to during the actual uh, the orbit maneuvers and then insertion during all that time i had the role of actually uh, guiding and uh, reviewing the process setting the targets and then uh, formulating the action plans during the actual trajectory maneuvers etc so uh-huh. i had a fairly involved role in that and, and i understand mars orbiter mission was planned and turned around in a very short time scale um one of the oh, parts i think it was the lens used for the the Mars color camera was right. partially uh, started off uh, with an off the shelf component so it wasn't built down yeah. in fact right so many of the things what we have been doing also is if certain things uh, if the required one is not available in the category we want with the kind of qualification mm-hmm. we do that activity by conducting some additional tests and going through a process of validation and then make sure that what we are using can meet the requirement so many of the cost of commercially off the shelf items we do use in our uh, experimental programs in operational systems of course you still try to keep this to a minimum uh-huh. but in uh, experimental missions we take uh, you can say yeah. a little more dirty and then go through the process of uh, validating the off the shelf items by conducting a series of experiments and then making sure that it meets our demand and, and uh, the mars orbiter mission you had to turn that around very quickly and it was a technology demonstrator right. um it's been in orbit uh, since uh, 2014 um that's it, correct has be actually it's on 24th of this month just a couple of days away it would complete 4 years of uh, its existence around mars and i think there was a problem with one of the the, the um, methane sensor in terms of calibration but i understand all the instruments are operating what's the status of that mission right now right now we have come out of the whiteout because every year as you are aware that uh, there is a period of blackout and whiteout and then uh, after that um, it becomes again uh, though everything is working we won't be able to know what is happening because of the communication gets masked either because the onboard antenna is flooded with sun or ground antenna is flooded with sun <laughs> so that is the black whiteout thing but otherwise now the mission is uh, on and it's still orbiting around the mars and then we do take uh, data from the chase and um, our mars color camera also once in a while it's not every day but uh, at uh, frequent intervals it images are taken and then finally if i may ask you um you were elected as the isro chairman in january 2015 um you served that role for 3 years until january this year going from a very technical system engineering role to a chairman's role where you have to meet with politicians and journalists and do things like this interview how do you which role do you find easier and which one do you enjoy the most of course one of the things is you can say i had the interaction with the international community of course much of it is scientific community mm-hmm. because i was also involved in the program on committee on earth observation satellite i used to be a member of the calibration and validation group uh-huh. and i also became the chair of uh, as, as isro representative as the chair of uh, 
committee on earth observation satellite uh-huh. between 2010 and 12 so i did have interaction with the international community and i was also a co-chair of uh, indo us uh, civil cooperation space cooperation program so i had uh, you can say exposure to the various uh, entities and with respect to the government of course because i was in space application center which has a major role in translating the observations into practical applications and these applications have to be actually linked to the user agencies we did have many interactions with the various government departments uh-huh. see unlike many other thing isro was always um, giving importance to involving these final stakeholders in the whole program of bringing the benefits of space technology for the societal things involving with the user departments so i did have a lot of interactions on at various levels so it in a, except and even of course the press also if you say <laughs> before i took up the chairman's position since i was also the director at space application center and many of these programs were mm-hmm. going on chandrayaan right. mars and uh, other things so we did have interaction with the press so it was not that it's all a totally new thing mm-hmm. the new thing is of course uh, the real the challenge of uh, dealing with the entire organization and total activities mm. so that's a real challenge. and but apart from that you can say it is uh, not very different from uh, what i was doing in general except of course you have to take decisions and then you have to make sure that uh, you bring together various uh, activities and then uh, deal with one of the major things that happened is in 2015 we also had a major interaction with all the government departments and secretaries of the government so there was a lot of interaction which was going on so it is you can say an increased level of activity rather than any new activity dr kiran kumar that's been absolutely fascinating thank you very much indeed for your time Thank you very much and uh, thanks for uh, the interactions.